Ooh, I'm loud. Well, good morning. I'm Sam, and uh, I'll have the privilege of uh, proclaiming uh, God's Word to you today. If you don't, uh, if you're new here, and if you haven't uh, picked up a book, uh, at least new maybe since the series, there are some booklets out there. We got a little short last week, so there's a bunch out there. You can get one before, after, and um, we believe as a church uh, in several things. Um, in terms of preaching, we believe in going through books of the Bible verse by verse. We think that uh, God, uh, every word of the Bible is breathed out by God and He put it there for a purpose. So whether it be a genealogy or a letter to a pastor, we're going to go straight through it. And so that's what we are doing. And this book helps kind of guide our uh, study a little bit. If you, are, um, if you have a family or if you're one of our road groups or questions and study, and there's a lot more in there this time to help kind of equip you as uh, pastors of your first church, which is what we talked about last week. So be sure you grab one of those. Uh, on your way out or uh, your way in um, or during a break. So last week, uh, we began uh, this new series, First uh, Timothy, and it's called Charge. And the reason why it's called Charge is because it's a, it's a book written to a young pastor, relatively young, about how to fight and what to fight in the church, in leading his church at the city of Ephesus. And this is the first of three letters that's written to pastors in the Bible, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and they're all young pastors. And the author, Apostle Paul, wrote basically about half of the New Testament, and he wrote many letters to many churches about many things. But in these particular letters, he, he writes most poignantly to church leaders about leading the church. And it is important that as, as our community grows and changes, and really any church that, that is a church grows and changes and gets older, it's essential that, and it's essential really to both our sanity and our sanctity, that we visit these kind of letters to make sure that we are first encouraged, but also corrected if we're out of line, that we might be guided into the future. So, last week, beginning in Acts, well, up to Acts 16, we were introduced to the recipient of this letter, Timothy, a young man, probably about 30, who had been commissioned by... Apostle Paul, and they had spent many years in ministry together, going around uh, Asia and whatnot, and uh, planting churches and, and ministering to people. And now he has commissioned Timothy, or at some point after several years, he commissioned Timothy to uh, lead this mini-reformation, if you will, in the city, which is a pretty expansive, incredible city, metropolis of sorts, uh, in Ephesus. And five years prior to this, give or take, Paul had planted the church in Ephesus, and upon his leaving, he had warned the elders of this Ephesian church, which at the time was probably fairly small, and said, there's going to be wolves. Watch out for wolves that rise up from within the church to destroy it. And as expected, the false teachers, quickly after he left, uh, rose up, and it appears that they probably were elders actually in the church. Um, who knows how many there actually were, but they were well known to the church. It wasn't just some stranger that walked in and started pouting off some, some strange things. So, Paul knows, as everyone should, that sheep and wolves don't get along. Sheep don't play with wolves. It's like Wild Kingdom 101. Sheep are eaten by wolves. Wolves kill sheep. It's very simple. And so, if the shepherd, if the pastor of any church allows 
wolves to hang around the church or hang around your family as pastor of your home, eventually someone in the flock is going to be hurt or worse, killed. Usually it's the immature and the weak sheep is what that happens to. Because they're ill-equipped to defend themselves or not old enough to defend themselves. And so within the first few sentences of this first letter to a pastor in the midst of this you know, wolf, so to speak, infested church, he charges them to fight the wolves. Kill the wolves. And shepherds have to learn how to pick fights well. They have to be fighters to begin with, and they have to learn to pick fights well. And I say that simply because anyone can charge a hill and fight for something. That's not difficult. But if you're going to die on a particular hill, you best be sure it's the hill that God actually wants you to die on. Because I know personally that I have picked some wrong fights before. And I'm a fighter, and I can fight with the best of them, but I'm not always, or haven't always, picked the right hills to die on and planted the flags in the right spots because they really weren't where God wanted me to, but they felt good to fight. So, in addition though, and I said this last week, these, these letters aren't just for professional pastors or professional Christians. Um, it's for anyone and everyone who has been chosen by God, and I emphasize that, chosen by God. If you are married, have kids, have people that are dependent upon you in some way, relying upon you, chosen by God to shepherd another heart. Anyone that has been chosen to shepherd another heart now or possibly in the future, that's who it's also written to. Because wolves have and will rise up first in our church. It's happened. They will come in our church. And they will come in your family, what I like to call your first church. And if you don't confront these wolves... If you just kind of let them walk around, play with the sheep, what's going to happen is that they will lead those who you are charged to care for away from the truth and towards sin and certain death. Guaranteed. Whether you're a man, a woman, a mom, a dad, a husband, a wife, grandma, grandpa, married, single, young, old, you must become what I believe is a sword-wielding wolf slayer. You have to. There is no choice in the matter. If we don't... Let me catch this. We don't slay wolves, though, so that we can build this incredible trophy room with all these wolf heads on the wall. I know many people like this, and I was probably like this myself, bragging about all the bad churches that we've killed, the bad preachers that... You know, we've killed the bad leaders, the bad beliefs, the bad whatevers. That we, that's not why we slay wolves. We slay wolves simply because we love the flock. And because we love the flock, we hope for the flock. And we want the flock to grow. That's where our focus is. I thought it was very interesting with Timothy's grandma and mother, Lois and Eunice, who raised him. They believed that the Scripture was, according to, it's in 1 Timothy 3, I don't know the exact verse, but they believed that as they put the Scriptures before Him, because they were able to make Him wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's why they did it. 
They knew that this was what would make them wise. So catch this. I don't want those who I love. Okay? Those who I care for. Those who are under my care. I don't want them happy, comfortable, intelligent, and satisfied if that means that what they believe and how they live is not biblical. But, I also don't want them biblical if all the wisdom they have isn't rooted in the Gospel. I know plenty of people who are some of the most biblical jerks I've ever met. And they can hammer verses down on you like you won't believe and make you feel like you know nothing. But much of what they believe is very pharisaical and it's not rooted in the Gospel. We don't want to raise children or a church like that. We have to be careful. We're not trying to build Bible thumpers as much as we're trying to build biblical gospel thumpers, if there's a difference, and I think there is. I've been a Bible thumper, and I think I'm becoming a better biblical gospel thumper, which is much better. So we're going to start in verse 1 of 1 Timothy and go through the first 11 verses, and we'll continue in this vein uh, throughout the entire letter. And here we go. In the opening of Paul's letter, he addresses what I think the wolves indirectly and Timothy directly. And he writes in this greeting, here we go, verse 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, colon, little greeting, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Paul starts here, he starts all his letters very similarly, but he starts here with a little more sauce maybe than some of his other letters, okay? It's not like ketchup, it's kind of like a peppercorn ranch, kind of like a little more saucy and spicy. And the the reason why is because if you read later in the chapter, I'm sorry, in the book in chapter 4 about, it's pretty clear as as Paul is charging Timothy, don't let them look down on youthfulness, that his authority has been questioned or challenged in, in some way because of his age or his inexperience. And that's why he probably doesn't want to be there right now. And it's likely that Paul himself, his own authority, has been questioned <clears throat> Excuse me, as well. And so he stretches the fact here that he is an apostle of Jesus by command of God. This is pretty important stuff. He is coming very authoritatively and he's putting himself on the level of the twelve apostles minus Judas plus Matthias. Okay, He's putting himself on that level as the thirteenth, if you will, apostle. And here, he, the common use for the word apostle, you kind of hear that used today. And it is used in the New Testament outside of describing these guys, the twelve, if you will. But the apostles... If someone is is an apostle there, someone who is sent on a commission in representing a person, and today it's often used uh, to describe the gifting of missionaries or church planters. They're like, well, if you plant a church, you've got the apostolic gift. I don't know if I buy that, to be honest with you, but that's how it's often used commonly. It was used that way in the Bible several times. But in its more restrictive use, which is how he's using it here, The apostles were set apart from anyone else and will always be that way. They were the guys who were chosen by, taught by, and commissioned by Jesus himself. Now that includes Paul because he was on the road to Damascus 
to arrest and kill Christians, and who shows up? Jesus. And later in 1 Corinthians 15, he says he was taught by Jesus the gospel and many other things. So he did see Jesus, know Jesus, like these guys did. These guys, the twelve plus Paul, were eyewitnesses, especially gifted. They did things that do not happen today, that we see. And Ephesians 2.20 says that the apostles, these guys, were part of the very foundation of the church. And so, from my perspective, and I think from a biblical perspective, there are new, no new apostles in this sense. Okay? Now, Paul here starts this way because he, he pulls what amounts to the apostle card. He's like, boop, apostle. Okay? These aren't some suggestions I'm giving. These aren't some good ideas. This is from a guy who's got some weight and pull with JC. Okay? He is got some authority. And he was commissioned by Jesus and God the Father. He makes it very specific. Now, this is... The beginning is both a warning to the wolves and a bit of an encouragement to Timothy, who is maybe a little fearful at this time. He gets a little more personal, though, as he addresses Timothy, who probably isn't overflowing with confidence right now. And in the first verse, in several places in the other letters, Paul addresses Timothy as my true child in the faith, which I think is a beautiful statement. We've, uh, we've already learned that Timothy was the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. It's most likely his dad was not a believer. And therefore, he wasn't Jewish either. And he would have been considered Timothy illegitimate by Jewish law. But yet his grandmother and his mother raised him faithfully, taught him the Scriptures, loved him, and he obviously ended up being pretty much a stud of the faith. And so, I was reminded though as I studied this, and I had conversations with a friend of mine about this, of all of the children being raised by single moms. And I mean single moms in in multiple senses. There are some that are single practically, like there is no husband there, no father at all. Then there are those that are single spiritually, where you're alone in your faith. And how this mom took it upon herself to teach her children, her son, about the things of Jesus. And many people, and I maybe even include myself in that, I think I learned more from my mother than I did my father about Jesus, which is incredibly tragic knowing where my mother is today. But what she did was awesome. But the thing about fathers is the fathers give some insight, whether they are a believer or not. The father communicates stuff about the father like no other. That's just the reality. And I do believe it's the way God designed it. And fathers either are preaching truth or falsehood about the Father and causing harm or good because of it. And that is why I believe as a church family, we have to very much love widows, love single moms, and give them an example of godly leaders and godly men for their children in particular to see We have a ton of kids back there. A ton of kids. And by God's grace, there are some godly men, not just women. Godly men back there leading them and giving them examples of the grace and the kindness of Jesus, showing them what a dad and a man and a husband looks like. And single moms and widows need that. And I was reminded by that. 
Well, Paul's letters here contain, uh, contain words basically from a father to a son. And he, he says, you know, basically, you're my boy. My boy, Timothy, come on. You're my son. My true faith son. I believe in you. You got the gospel. Now go. And the thing about dads is the best words a father can give you, and I do this my, to my sons all the time, is that, you know, you're a Ford boy. That means something. You're a Ford boy. But that's, I can't just stop there. That's not enough. What they actually have to be told is not that you're just a Ford, but you're a Christian. You're Jesus' boy. And as Jesus' boy, man up and lead. Because He's already defeated everything. He is already leading. You're really just following Him. Take the Gospel and go. Man up and lead. And this is exactly what I believe Paul is telling Timothy. And he starts right in in verse 3. He says... As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies that promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. And the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is very meaningful for me personally. Timothy is urged what sounds like a second time to remain in Ephesus. And he has to urge him because it's clear, I think, that Timothy wants to quit. I don't know what other correspondence has happened at this point, but he's urging him again to stay. And I imagine Timothy is wanting to tell Paul, maybe he has, you know, Paul, life was a lot easier when I wasn't responsible. When I wasn't the one in charge. If you read in Acts 16, everyone spoke kindly of Timothy. Everyone loved Timothy. And I, know, I bet he's imagining this. Remember when we used to go together, Paul? I'd just go behind you. It was great. You were leading. You'd get stoned. I'd watch you get up. It was awesome. But I just kind of stood back. I wasn't in the front. Remember when people liked me, Paul? Remember that? Everyone loved Timothy. It was awesome. Now everyone hates my guts. And I think he wants to quit. And honestly, as a pastor, I can understand how Timothy feels. As an English teacher become pastor, I can understand how Timothy feels. Leading a church is amazing, but it's hard, it's rewarding, but it's incredibly exhausting. And since I've become a pastor, quite frankly, I've lost friends. I have family members who will not step foot in here. I've seen people come, and I've seen people run. I have wept. I mean, wept. And I'm not a big crier. I wasn't even sure I had tear ducts before I became a pastor. And then I started weeping. All kinds of water was spraying out all the time. Okay? I have gotten angry like I never have before. I have fought wolves. I have lost sleep over others. Right? I used to be the guy who'd be like out, not think of anything. And now it's like a Rolodex of faces that go through my mind. I have felt sick. I have been depressed. I never was depressed. Ever. I mean, I, you know, life, I was, as a teacher, was great. Weekends off. Summer vacation. Christmas. I mean, I didn't worry about anything. And then suddenly I'm like, on a Sunday afternoon, and I've gotten much better at this, sitting like, You know, woe is me. What did I say? What didn't I say? 
I've been praised and I've been despised, for sure. So I know how Timothy feels a little bit. And for whatever reason, it appears that Timothy is not feeling the love where he's at. And he doesn't want to be there. He's not enjoying what he's doing. And I think he's looking for the first opportunity to leave. And I wonder if you know how he feels a little bit, because even as a pastor, as much as I may have felt unqualified, or like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this or do this, I felt the same as a parent. I felt the same as a husband. I have felt the same as a teacher, as just a, a, an employee. I have felt that same thing where I just want to get away. Because when times get tough, it is always, always easier to desire something different and to get out of what you know God has called you to be, especially as a parent and a husband. As husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and men and women and even if it's pastors, it's always easier to abandon that God-given charge. And if you've got kids, guess what? You have a God-given charge to be their pastor. If you're married, husbands and wives have a God-given charge to pastor one another. It's, it's God-given. But how many times have you thought, oh, it's so, so much easier if I could get away from this? Because the truth is, it's easier not to fight. Way easier not to fight. It's easier to avoid conflict. It's easier to be indifferent. It's easier not to talk about sin, not to draw lines in the sand and say this is wrong, this is right. It's much easier to be popular. It's easier not to change. It's easier to do what's comfortable and convenient and common. It's easier to pursue my desires than God's. It is easier, but it's not right. But it certainly is easier, and that's where Timothy is. And so to make things easier for Timothy, he says, I want you to do something really hard. And he says, he didn't name any names, but it says, you need to talk to these certain persons. They need to be addressed. And he's talking about the wolves. And the thing about wolves is that everyone knows who they are. He doesn't have to name them. Everyone knows who the wolves are, but people are often afraid to talk to them or about them. And you can certainly identify them quite easily. And I'll tell you how to identify a wolf. They are the ones who are generally divisive people. And I don't mean divisive in the most extreme ways. But they are in the heart divisive people end up distracting the church from its mission to preach the gospel. In the church, here's what wolves are often, and this is what we see in Timothy. They're often those men or the wives of men. I've seen many churches destroyed because of the wife of an elder pastor. Maybe more so than the pastor himself. But they typically, in a church, wolves are those men or their wives who are in leadership. They aspire to be in leadership. Or they are draining the leadership of all their time and energy and resources. And meanwhile... These wolves will carve out a small following of people they've influenced through what Paul describes as foolish and vain discussions. Just questions, just asking questions. Why do we do this? What's that? But the wolves, the, the deceptive part is that no one ever looks like a wolf. 
It's not like you go, man, look at the teeth on that thing. I mean, you just, it, it doesn't look like a wolf. In fact, the, the wolves are often very likable people, very intriguing people, very relational people. You like to be around them. They make you feel good. They listen. They ask questions, just like the serpent in the garden. It's not like Eve walked up and was like, oh my gosh, a serpent! There was an allure there. Maybe Adam, you know, wasn't talking too much and she had someone to talk to. I don't know. But Satan comes disguising himself as an angel of light and so do wolves in all stories. Think about wolves in just like fairy tale stories. Wolves are always those deceptive flatterers, right? Making you feel good about yourself and you get closer to them and they eat you. In the Ephesian church, these certain men are probably elders with influence who can teach others and are in those positions. And up to this point, I think one of the most dangerous things is that none of the other elders have seemed to call them on it. There's been a leadership. You know, basically, if I come up here and start going crazy or outside of here, my hope is, and I think I can say this with confidence, you can trust your elders outside of me will call me on it, will fire me if need be. I have no more authority than they do, and they speak truth into my life, and we have had discussions and arguments, and I have been rebuked. And that's how it should be. But no one said anything here, because we are very slow to speak the truth to someone, especially someone who's kind of in leadership, right? To tell them what they're doing is wrong, unhealthy, or unwise, because we're so fearful of their reaction, much more than we're fearful of the reaction of God. We're, we're more desiring of their approval than we are of God's approval. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to say anything, although I totally see this as wrong. And I don't, I don't want people to think, you know, I'm going to be a jerk. It doesn't mean you are a jerk and you should be a jerk, because there are people that say stuff who are jerks. They're like, well, you know, I'm just calling out a wolf. Well, you can be a jerk and do that as well. But we don't make decisions and remain silent out of fear of someone thinking we're going to be one. If everyone remained silent, think about this, if everyone remained silent and said nothing, leaders, members, whoever, what will happen is the influential individuals, the loudest voices, because they're not silent, they will divide and eventually kill the church through relationships. And this isn't just the church as much as it also is your first church, your family. Wolves come into your lives all the time. They can be those people of influence in your life. And I'm not trying to make you some kind of wolf hunter, but at some level, they're there. Wherever there's a flock, guess what? There are wolves. There's a reason why the Bible describes Satan as a lion, walking around prowling, looking for someone to devour. That's what wolves do. So if you have a flock, which you have a family, you do, they are there. You may not see them right now, but oftentimes they're, they're people who influence your life. People in your family sometimes, sometimes good friends. They might even come from just popular authors that you read, movies that you love, even just cultural movements that are really intriguing to you. They are the ones whose lives and words preach to you and your spouse and your children from whatever source they come from. And they are in the, they are in the position in your life because you've given that position to them. You, they're in the position in life that give you wisdom, even sometimes spiritual-sounding wisdom. 
that isn't necessarily biblical, but you listen because you love them and you respect them and you like them. And in the end, their questions or challenges or actions don't build your faith. They build doubts about your faith, about God's Word, about your church. That's how you can evaluate them. And you have to protect those who are in your care and yourself. So Paul says the motivation of any charge, of any desire to protect and to call these wolves, these certain persons, is motivated by love, purity, and a sincere faith. Anytime you're going to call out somebody, anytime you're going to rebuke a wolf or defend your family against a wolf, it must be motivated by a love for God, a love for the sheep, and guess what? Even a little bit of love for the wolf. little bit. Now, you don't love the wolf enough to let him in there, but there's a reason why the Bible says love your enemies. So there is a hope that that person will repent. There is a hope that person will change. It's not just, I'm going to kill you no matter what, but I'm going to kill you if you don't change, as in remove you from influence. Don't think, though, if you do, that the wolf, you come with this glorious truth, this big gun, whatever, that they're going to go, oh, thank you, I understand now. I have been acting wolfy, and I will no longer do that. That's not what happens. In fact, Proverbs 17.10 should give you a great insight to what happens. It says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Wolves are foolish. And you can tell them the same thing 15 times, and they may not listen. We cannot control how others hear what we say. We cannot even control what others say ultimately. But we can constantly review our own hearts and why we're doing what we're doing to make sure they're aligned with the gospel. And they're aligned with God. And they're coming from a heart of gentleness as you speak the truth. So verse 6 through 10 here tells him, gets more specific about these certain persons, right? He says, certain persons, same ones we're talking about, these wolves, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul says that these certain persons have swerved what I think is from a a motivation of love, purity, and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, they have left any pure motives and whatever's coming out of their mouths is impure. They have sinful motives, constantly talking about stupid things, quite frankly, that bring greater doubts and not greater faith. And Paul notes that the wolves desire to be teachers of the law. That's important. They desire to be teachers. James warns people, we studied James uh, a couple months ago, James warns people, don't desire to be teachers. You're going to be called account to a higher level. 
But they desire to be teachers here. They're not interested, note, in teaching the law. They're interested in being teachers. They want the position, just as the Pharisees loved their position. They wanted to have positions of respect and power and regard. That's why you always see wolves aspiring to leadership, desiring leadership, so they can have more influence. Why don't they ask me to do something? I should really be leading this. Be careful if you're saying that in your heart. Be careful. You've got my little hairs growing, you know, in places and teeth start to come out. You don't even know it, right? Makes like a full moon and you're howling or something. But in other words, they are constantly talking, I think, or their constant talking is motivated by this identity to lead. They're governed by it. So motivated by their own glory, Paul says, they make confident assertions about the law. They're, they're confidently talking about Scripture and about God's law. And oftentimes they actually try, in other words, and sometimes they succeed in sounding intelligent. These aren't like, they don't sound totally foolish, although they are vain discussions. They actually sound intelligent. They may even sound spiritual and even biblical. This is the hard part. What I mean is, just because though someone drops a few verses, writes an awesome blog, quotes a dead theologian, explains a Greek word, or even preaches a sermon, doesn't mean that they are teaching in line with Scripture. Okay? You should test all things. But oftentimes we refuse to test it because we like the person, we respect the person, we enjoy the person. In fact, the worst, I think, and most powerful lies are the ones that actually sound biblical. Those are the worst ones. That it sounds like, well, gosh, you've you got a verse on there. And that's from Scripture, right? I am always cautious when people or preachers or books or movements start talking about new or hidden knowledge that sounds quirky. The reason why it sounds quirky or the lost ways of the apostles, the way they did it back in the New Testament days, like we've been missing out for how many centuries. I'm always cautious. I'm not saying they're always wrong, but I'm cautious. More often than not, something is perverted there. In the case of Ephesus, they are teaching Scripture. But they're teaching a perverted view of God's law. And Paul says that the law is great. It's good. It is a good thing if it's used lawfully, implying that they are not using it that way. They're using it wrongly, but how do you use the law unlawfully? It seems kind of strange. Used lawfully, the law is a good thing. The moral law of God, summarized in the Ten Commandments, there are other laws, some are more ceremonial, some are more civic in nature, but the moral law we're talking about, best to, to reference the Ten Commandments, is used to reveal our sin. Was and is. It shows us how evil we are. That's its whole purpose. It shows us how evil we are, how we are not to hate, and how we probably will, and how we are to love. And it still provides that guidance for us. Calvin talked about how the law still provides clarity on how to love people. But using it all unlawfully is where instead of God's moral laws being used to condemn sin, whether it be sins you commit or sins you don't, as in, 
I'm going to hate you, but I probably should love you, but I'm just going to be indifferent. That's still sin. It's used unlawfully where instead of condemning our sin, the wolves use the law and God's Word to justify their sin. To twist it a little bit. I believe that the greatest threat to the Gospel in our culture is not some overt anti-God doctrine. But it's more of a subtle and naive teaching that takes our own personal beliefs and inserts them into Scripture. And wolves often make those sound biblical. And in truth, such doctrine amounts to a very alluring. It is alluring. Oprah loves it. Okay? But what it amounts to is this confusing montage of pieces of Orthodox Christianity and pieces of the self-help movement and then a little bit of pop culture reference in there and this different theology, which really isn't very different at all. It morphs and changes a little bit, but it's, we've been dealing with it for years. Doesn't center on God's law and lead us to the cross. Instead, it centers on personal experience. And it doesn't recognize the depths of our sin and the need for a Savior. Instead, it's more interested in conversations, spiritual conversations, that don't really lead to any final conclusions because I dare not condemn or praise anything. The only authority is the individual in this doctrine. The only moral value is tolerance in this doctrine. And the only guide is my experience, or yours, whatever. Peter made an awesome verse, or wrote an awesome verse talking about experience. Even his own experience as an eyewitness. In 1 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18 says this. You've probably heard this before. Sounds very similar to the myths that they're talking about here. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw it. First-hand experience. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, at His baptism, we over we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven. We had this experience. Right? For we were with Him on the holy mountain. At the transfiguration, we had it. We saw it. Verse 19. And we have something more sure. More secure. The prophetic word the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp and a shining and shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture is talking about the bible no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit the fight for truth isn't about personal anything. It's about being biblical. That's it. hate to sound like the Godfather. It's not personal. Okay? But when you're killing wolves, it's not personal. doesn't mean you are a jerk and an impersonal, you know, jerk. But it does mean you're biblical, and if the truth hurts, the truth hurts. I'm going to present it as gently as I can. But to a wolf, it's going to look like a gun, no matter what. 
So wolves often come in the church and pervert God's designs and laws. And Paul lists all these sins. And he contrasts all these sins to sound doctrine. Okay? That the same word we get, that sound, the same word we get from the English term hygiene. It's, in other words, there is a norm, a right, a clean doctrine. There is doctrine, a belief system that is biblical and that which is not. There is a black and a white. There is a right and a wrong. The Bible is very clear. He's like, there is wisdom from God and there is wisdom from demons. But yet we're like, well, it could be. It's very clear. And a cursory look at this list that he lists here, it's one that follows the heart of the Ten Commandments, God's moral law, It reveals the same issues that we are charged to fight for or against, depending how you look at it today. Lawless and disobedient. The fact that there's no moral law. It's just social engineering, social contract. We do what's right to make the world work. Ungodly and sinful. There's no such thing as sin. Nothing to be guilty of. It's just, you know, psychological conditioning. You shouldn't feel guilty. Unholy and profane. There's nothing sacred. Right? There's just cultural traditions that we do. There's nothing sacred anymore. We did a whole sermon series called Sacred Assembly because we do believe there is something sacred. Those who strike their mothers and fathers. Parents, teachers, government. There's no authority. There's just me. I'm my own authority. The sexual immoral. Homosexuality. Marriage, the concept of marriage. Sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage in any form. Adultery. There's no definitions. That's what they're proclaiming. The doctor, there's no definitions. It's just personal. Whatever you feel. Enslavers, most likely talking about kidnappers, which for me is the, exploit, the, the ultimate exploitation of people and things. And there's... No humility. Everything's material. Tools for me to get ahead. Or liars or perjurers. That Overall, there is no objective truth. It's all subjective. I'll just re-describe it into another word to make it work for me. Those are the things that we are fighting against. Where God says, no, there is a way. There is a law. There is sin. There are definitions. There are boundaries. That is what we're fighting for. That is what we have to shepherd our, our sheep toward. But as he concludes, this is an awesome verse, and we'll cl- conclude on this as well. He wraps up his list of sin like this. He says, what is contrary to sound doctrine, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's huge. So that Paul doesn't become this, this moralist, or worse, a legalist, right? He throws in a brief little statement that is at the heart of our charge to fight against wolves. The most important thing you can fight for. We are to fight against sin. We are to fight against sin. We are to proclaim and defend the truth. We are to fight against false truth and wolves, even if it has a little bit of Bible in it. But right doctrine matters, but right doctrine is always in harmony with the Gospel. Always in harmony with the Gospel. If you only, check this out, if you only have law and doctrine, 
but no grace and mercy of the Gospel. You will only despair. That's all you have. You will see how bad you are, how much you covet, how much you lust, how much you worship, all kinds of things other than God. And without the Gospel, wolves will come in and they will cause you to beat the snot out of yourself because you're not living a holy life. And that's how you'll view the world. But if you only have grace and mercy and no law or doctrine, then you'll become prideful and you'll cheapen grace. And what happens, wolves will come in saying, well, your sin's not that big a deal, if they even talk about sin. That all's forgiven, that you're under the Gospel now. Mercy and grace, so who cares if you live a godly life? All's forgiven. But Paul here says, that sins that break the law are also contrary to the Gospel. That the moral standards of the law don't differ from the moral standards of the Gospel. That's huge. The Gospel gives us grace and mercy which cannot exist without sin and law. You can't be given undeserved favor. You can't be... Mercy can't be given to withhold wrath without sin that's committed and death that's deserved because of law. But we are supposed to have, through grace and mercy, with the sin there, peace with a loving God. So we're not fighting for liberal doctrine where there is no law at all, but whatever I want to make up. And we also don't fight for moral doctrine where all we have is law. Some of you grew up with preachers telling you that. Be good, be good, be good. We fight for gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine, where we talk about sin, we call people to confess and repent, and we trust that we are accepted, not because of what we do, but because we believe in Jesus. That's gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine humbles me but it gives me hope because I know that all that I believe about God and myself finds explanation on the cross where we are in the most mysterious way at the exact same moment, totally unlovable, totally broken, and yet God is absolutely loving. So the Gospel protects us from fighting the wrong battles and dying on the wrong hills. It protects us from pride as we fight or despair when we screw up fighting and we fall in the middle of the battlefield. The Gospel keeps us humble, but it always keeps us hopeful. And the Gospel ensures that as we battle, as we draw lines in the sand, as we declare things good and bad, right and wrong, as we kill all the wolves that come up, we do so knowing that we are not made right with God because of clean lives and perfect doctrine. We are made right with God because we depend on Jesus for His perfect life and His perfect doctrine. That is gospel doctrine. And that, without question, as Paul begins his letter to the, his church and our first churches, is the most important thing you can teach. Gospel. If you lose the gospel, you've lost everything. And you'll end up prideful or despairing. And God says... You're totally unlovable. There is a right, there is a wrong, and you're way in the wrong, and you deserve to die, but I'm going to love you. 
And I'm going to fulfill that law perfectly in my son and give that life to you. That's what we celebrate. That is the first fight. And if you don't start there, it's not even worth fighting anything else. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you will make us warriors, not moral warriors, fighting for the rightness and getting people to live a certain way. Not liberal warriors that fight that you can live any way you want, Lord, but fighting for the gospel. For doctrine that declares that there is consequence for sin, that there is sin that that we are guilty of. And yet you pay for our sin. You die in our place that we might be empowered to live a life that is holy. May you be honored by what we proclaim here. May you empower us to fight for the gospel in this church as its foundation and for the gospel in our families as the first and foremost thing we confess to our husbands and wives, our children and our friends. In your son's blood we pray. Amen.